Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast. Providing podcasters with flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O dot C-O. And be sure to add our podcast in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. Podmoth. Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. Googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. hysteria. Throughout history, humanity has encountered some interesting, macabre, and wildly unfortunate stumbling blocks. Between 1692 and 1693, the Salem witch trials were in full swing, the tales of little children having wound the populace of Salem into a terrible spiral. It's one of the best-known incidents of mass hysteria, and more than 20 people were executed. More than a hundred were jailed for crimes of witchcraft, and the whole thing, the seizures supposedly experienced by the original accusers, and the visits of witches to their bedrooms at night, all of it, could have been easily avoided. Eventually, scientists would come to the conclusion that anything from stress to fungus on bread was the cause. In 1917, the miracle of the sun occurred. Three young children said that they'd seen the Virgin Mary, and that she'd told them that a miracle would come to pass. It would be so incredible that nobody would be able to dispute the fact that she'd made her presence known. On the day this supposed miracle would take place, large crowds gathered. They stood in the pouring rain until the sun finally broke through the clouds, waiting for a miracle. Some would say that the sun changed colors, spun around, trembled, or in one case, appeared to be hurtling towards Earth. There was no consensus by those present as to what actually took place, so the whole thing was just chalked up to prolonged staring into the sun. In Halifax, England, in 1938, there were reports of a man randomly attacking women with a mallet or a knife. Again, there was no consensus as to what was actually happening, but many of the victims were adamant that they'd seen the slasher 
and that he'd done them bodily harm. Police even called in Scotland Yard to help them catch the slasher, but it's hard to catch someone who doesn't exist. Victims appeared to have wounds that were suspicious, likely self-inflicted, and eventually came clean with police that they'd made the whole thing up. Police came to the conclusion that the slasher had been created to garner attention and pity for the victims. It seemed, though, that some of the women in question genuinely believed that they'd been attacked. In Tanzania in 1962, an epidemic of laughter broke out. At an all-girls school in Kashasha, Tanzania, three girls began laughing uncontrollably, defying their teachers when they were asked to stop. The epidemic lasted anywhere from a few hours in excess of 15 days, and more than 90 students were affected. It led to school closures, and other nearby villages began experiencing laughing fits. This continued off and on for about a year, after which time it ceased as mysteriously as it began. In November of 2012, flu-like symptoms afflicted the students at a school in Sri Lanka. Rashes, headaches, intestinal issues, and severe cough were reported. In Gampola, more than 1,000 people had to be admitted to hospital, and panic broke out. It seemed the illness was spreading to other schools and populations like wildfire. After a short time, the illness just disappeared. No medical cause for it could be found even after thorough testing of those afflicted by medical professionals. It just stopped. The mind is complex, and neural pathways that wind through our head boxes are both underexplored and mysterious. Medical science has come to the conclusion that it was all imagined, and none of the people involved were ever in any actual distress, except for the people who were killed for being witches in Salem. Unfortunately, in the medieval era, medical science wasn't all it's cracked up to be these days, and another bout of mass hysteria took hold, but this time it involved dancing. Yep, you heard me right. Dancing. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast on the Podmoth Media Network your bi-weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. This week, I bring you strange tales of dancing in the street that continued long past the point of injury and defied all logic, at least at the time. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you all know that the Weird Together teas are still available on the bonfire site. Pretty soon, I'll be making a new design available, so if you want this shirt, be sure and snag it soon. Show your support with the Weird Together shirt, a 50-50 cotton poly blend. It's seriously the softest shirt that you'll have in your closet. And now, on with the show. The word lunatic derives from the Latin word lunaticus, meaning of the moon or moonstruck. There was a time when those with mental illness were handled with the understanding that they'd need to be cared for physically for a lengthy period of time. When it came to actually treating the problem, little was done. In the early Middle Ages, compassionate care was thrown to the wayside because, of course, these individuals were possessed, and they needed their demons exercised. And what's the best way to get demons out of your head? 
Why drilling and cutting, of course? That's a whole other topic. But the prevailing theory that mentally ill people were possessed meant that diseases of the mind had to be dealt with one way or another. They couldn't be allowed to live this way with demons all up in their head box. In the Greco-Roman world, a world that was conquered by Christianity, that just wouldn't do. In 1494, it seemed everyone had a cure for madness, from astrologers to jugglers, as well as the occasional nun and monk, and each stone they encountered was dealt with accordingly. The process is depicted in the following artwork. I'll drop a link in the show notes so that you can enjoy it as well. From the AMA Journal of Ethics, quote, During medieval times, many people believed a stone of madness, or Pierre de Foix, existed inside the skulls of the mentally deranged. One common treatment to cure their madness was to remove the stone. Medical quacks roamed the countryside, offering to perform the surgery. The painting by the Flemish artist Hieronymus Bosch, 1490, depicts a quack cutting the flower of folly from the head of Lubar Das, a familiar Dutch fool figure. As the mania escapes from his head, a clergyman representing the church looks on, possibly invoking help from the saints. The woman represents melancholia, another commonly described mental illness of the Middle Ages, and the book on her head symbolizes the false learning that is the basis of the quack's cure. End quote. Now, sometimes it's not as simple as cutting a stone out of someone's head, which was generally discovered after, you know, quacks tried to remove madness via cutting and drilling. There's also the pesky issue of treating the individual afterward and finding out how the stone actually got there in the first place. So when people began to randomly dance in the streets, there wasn't much thought put into what the cause might be, aside from the fact that the flower of folly must be at work. Let's take a look at a few of these medieval flash mobs in no particular order. I'd hate to have to pick favorites. Good thing it's my podcast. Moving right along. In July of 1518, a woman named Frau Trofea, in some research it's a random woman whose name isn't given, walked into the center of the street in Strasbourg, Germany, and began to dance. This in itself wasn't entirely odd, though she might have gotten some strange looks. It was the fact that Frau Trofea continued to dance in a frenzied and compulsive sort of way for days. She continued past the point of injury to herself and gained a following of other dancers who seemed to be similarly afflicted. The authorities were shocked and confused, and they responded in the most logical way possible for the time. They arranged for guild halls to be constructed so that the dancers could gather indoors, and they brought in musicians to give the dancers something to convulse to. Civic and religious leaders thought that whatever in the fresh hell was happening could be cured by more dancing. As Martin Luther King once said, people with good intentions but limited understanding are more dangerous than people with total ill will. I'm guessing those civic and religious leaders were kicking themselves pretty hard when the crowd of around 30 dancers grew in a seemingly endless manner, and as many as 400 people were consumed by it. In early September, it seemed as if the sickness was beginning to slow, and gradually life returned to normal. The Dancing Plague of 1518 is the most thoroughly documented, 
So when you hear people talking about dancing plagues, they're likely referring to this one. From Britannica.com, assistant editor Patricia Bauer writes, quote, Contemporary explanation dancing plague included demonic possession and overheated blood. Investigators in the 20th century suggested that the afflicted might have consumed bread made from rye flour contaminated with the fungal disease ergot, which is known to produce convulsions. American sociologist Robert Bartholomew posited that dancers were adherents of heretical sects, dancing to attract divine favor. The most widely accepted theory was that of American medical historian John Waller, who laid out in several papers his reasons for believing that the dancing plague was a form of mass psychogenic disorder. Such outbreaks take place under circumstances of extreme stress and generally take form based on local fears. In the case of the dancing plague of 1518, Waller cited a series of famines and the presence of such diseases as smallpox and syphilis as the overwhelming stressors affecting residents of Strasbourg. He further maintained that there was a local belief that those who failed to propitiate St. Vitus, patron saint of epileptics and dancers, would be cursed by being forced to dance. End quote. One of the earliest documented outbreaks occurred in the 7th century and reappeared many times throughout Europe. In the 13th century, an outbreak occurred that was reported similarly to the tale of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. The legend originated about the same time. You remember the story, right? The Pied Piper rids Hamelin of rats by leading them to the sea to drown, and when the town refuses to pay for his services, the Piper comes for the town's children. The dancers in this case, all children, jumped and skipped 12 miles from Erfurt in central Germany to Arnstadt. Quite the trek. I guess the whole, it's 10 p.m., do you know where your children are? Didn't come around until 1961, so maybe the parents were okay with it? Have you seen Susie today? No? Cool. Well, I'm just going to go into the street and dance myself into exhaustion. Have a good one. In 1278, 200 people danced over a bridge on the River Meuse, causing it to collapse. Many of the survivors were restored to health at a nearby chapel dedicated to St. Vitus. One of the largest outbreaks occurred in 1374 in Aachen, Germany, and spread through Utrecht, Metz, Tongeren, Cologne, Flanders, and Franconia, and also through Italy and Luxembourg. In 1428, in Schaffhausen, a monk danced to death, and the same year several women in Zurich danced convulsively, seemingly without cause. Further incidents in the 16th century, the plague was at its peak during this time, included a group of children in 1536 and one in 1551 that involved only one person. By the 17th century, it seems people had had their fill of dancing. Outbreaks of mania varied, but there were several defining characteristics. In some cases, tens of thousands would feverishly dance for hours on end, and sometimes even for days, weeks, or months straight. From research obtained by Robert Bartholomew's book, Little Green Men, Meowing Nuns, and Headhunting Panics, quote, In his research into social phenomena, he notes that contemporary sources record that participants did not often reside where the dancing took place. 
Such people would travel from place to place, and others would join them along the way. With them, they brought customs and behavior that were strange to local people. Bartholomew describes how dancers wore strange and colorful attire and held wooden sticks. Women have often been portrayed in modern literature as the usual participants in dancing mania, although contemporary sources suggest otherwise. Whether the dancing was spontaneous or an organized event is also debated." End quote. Bartholomew also noted that non-participants were sometimes subjected to random outbursts of violence. Join or die mentality, I suppose. Or rather, join and possibly die anyway? Apparently, the color red also caused the dancers to become violent. The dancers couldn't stand pointed shoes and enjoyed their feet being hit. Chest pains, convulsions, hallucinations, fits, and visions were on the short list of ailments. When dancing was through, most participants dropped from exhaustion, and some remained in a state of ecstasy. The mania was believed to be contagious, but in some cases, only small groups of individuals were affected. From psychopathology in the social process, dance frenzies, demonic possession, revival moments, and similar so-called psychic epidemics and interpretation, George Rosen writes, quote, Within the framework of his ideas about relations between health and society, Rudolf Virchow developed a theory that epidemic disease was a consequence of social and cultural maladjustment. Drawing a parallel between the individual and the body politic, he said, If disease is an expression of individual life under unfavorable conditions, then epidemics must be indicative of major disturbances in mass life. Virchow differentiated natural and artificial epidemics, basing the distinction on the degree to which cultural factors are interposed between nature and man. Moreover, he considered artificial epidemics not only as arising out of social contradictions, but also as significant indicators of historical trends and developments. Such outbreaks of disease, according to Virchow, mark nodal points in history and characterize people of political and intellectual revolution. In illustration of his socio-historical theory of epidemic disease, Virchow referred to psychic epidemics, pointing out that the artificial epidemics are physical or mental, for mental diseases also occur epidemically, and tear entire peoples into a mad, psychotic movement. Psychiatry alone enables the historian to survey and understand the major fluctuations of public opinion and popular feeling, which on the whole resemble the picture of individual mental illnesses. Virchow was not alone in his views. For the most part, investigators of these episodes have, like Virchow, endeavored to understand them in terms of collective psychopathology. Essentially, however, such an approach begs the question assuming in advance what remains to be determined. It will be more useful, perhaps, to raise questions such as these. Through what processes do such epidemics appear and disappear? Within what social and cultural context do they arise? Are there any individuals or group values that are being satisfied? If individual psychopathology occurs in these situations, what is its relation to group behavior? Is induced ecstasy, for example, socially expected of people in certain roles or situations? The main point is not to label the behavior as psychotic 
or psychopathological, even though its members may act oddly by ordinary criteria. There may well be a rational core in apparently irrational behavior. One must first examine the behavior in its context before judging it. End quote. From here, let's travel to Italy and discuss another dancing plague. Tarantism was what they called the affliction, and victims were said to have been bitten by a tarantula or a scorpion. The earliest known outbreak was in the 13th century, and the antidote was dance. Apparently, dancing was said to separate the venom from the blood. In the summer months, people would begin to dance the tarantella, and it happened until the 17th century. The tarantella is a folk dance that's characterized by an upbeat tempo and accompanied by tambourines. The Bloomberg Dictionary of Music states that the tarantella, quote, is among the most recognized forms of traditional southern Italian music. The specific dance name varies with every region, end quote. Even if the individual thought that they might have been bitten with no sure proof, they'd still dance for safety's sake. Those who had been bitten previously would also join, believing that the venom in their old bites would be reactivated by the summer heat or the music alone. Bartholomew continues, quote, Some participated in further activities, such as tying themselves up with vines and whipping each other, pretending to sword fight, drinking large amounts of wine, and jumping into the sea. Some died if there was no music to accompany their dancing. Sufferers typically had symptoms resembling those of dancing mania, such as headaches, trembling, twitching, and visions. As with dancing mania, participants apparently did not like the color black, and women were reported to be the most affected. Unlike dancing mania, tarantism was confined to Italy and southern Europe. It was common in the 17th century, but ended suddenly with only very small outbreaks in Italy until as late as 1959. The study of the phenomena in 1959 by religious history professor Ernesto de Martino revealed that most cases of tarantism were probably unrelated to spider bites. Many participants admitted that they'd not been bitten, but believed that they'd been infected by someone who had been, or that they'd been simply touched by a spider. The result was mass panic, with a cure that allowed people to behave in ways that were normally prohibited at the time. Despite their differences, tarantism and dancing mania are often considered synonymous." The true cause of the dancing plague was unknown, and so there was a lot of guesswork involved in curing the afflicted. Responses in some cases were similar to those of the Black Death people were put into isolation and some treated with religion through exorcism. It was believed that the Sicilian martyr St. Vitus, sometimes known as Guy or Guido, brought about the plague as a curse. He was supposedly a Christian martyr from Lucania, but there's no information about when he was born or when he died, and his iconography is pure legend. Those afflicted would pray and make pilgrimages to places that were dedicated to the martyr. They also prayed to St. John the Baptist, because some believed that he was to blame. Possession by demons or Satan was thought to be another probable cause, and so exorcisms were performed on dancers. Music was thought to be an effective remedy, but in many cases it only encouraged others to join, 
leading to more afflicted people in the streets or the guild halls. So it could have been mass psychosis, or demon possession, or any other number of random causes. But Johannes Knoll, author of The Black Death, A Chronicle of the Plague, has a different theory. Ergotism. Ergotism results from long-term consumption of alkaloids produced on fungus. It can grow on standing corn and rye especially, in conditions that are warm and damp. At that point in history, Noel writes that rye was the poor man's loaf. Anyone who ingested rye laced with ergot could experience a range of symptoms, from the physical, seizures, gangrene, and violent cramps, to the psychological, mental derangement, and delirium. Ergotism has also been presented as a possible explanation for the convulsions of the accusers during the Salem witch trials, though I have my doubts about that. Many people believe that ergo consumption was to blame for the strange behaviors of the residents of Black River Falls, Wisconsin. Something to Google if you've never heard of it. It seems another popular theory is that dances were all staged, and that religious cults at the time had been acting out Greek and Roman rituals that had been banned under the guise of mania. Dancing plagues are one of the earliest forms of mass hysteria and truly odd. Whether the dancing was to ward off evil, to combat the effect of spider venom, or just a side effect of eating too much moldy rye, perhaps we'll never know. One thing is for certain, after weeks of endless dancing, there's no doubt in my mind that they were experiencing the agony of defeat. Get it? Defeat? That's it for this week, dear listeners. Tune in next time for more tales of the creepy, weird, and paranormal. Until then, stay spooky. Enjoy this week's episode? Consider purchasing a cocktail for me so that I can wet my whistle and continue to bring you awesome content. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash identitypod to add funds to my tip jar. Your support is greatly appreciated. The Identity Podcast is brought to you by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at Identity Pod and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes. And if you haven't already, please make sure to mash the subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.
Who do you call when you need someone who studies astrophysics and can perform a series of high kicks in a line at Radio City Music Hall? A rocket scientist. What's the best dance to pair with chips? Salsa. What do you call a pole dancing chicken? A chicken strip. In order to stay healthy during this pandemic, I've been dancing in public while insulting people. I practice social distancing. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Memento Mori, an object serving as a warning or reminder of death. Death is inevitable, but how it happens can be tragically unfair. It can be dark, cruel, hateful, or just plain bizarre. I'm Megan, and I'll be your guide through these stories of chaos and devastation. Come listen as we dive into all types of true crime cases and learn about the evil that lurks among us as well as the victims that deserved none of it. Join me every Monday for a missing person minisode and every Thursday for a regular episode. You can go to mementomoripod.com for more information. Monsters are real, and they look like people. <laughs>